Is Fusionism Dead? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Aaron Powell. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Aaron Powell. Aaron was the director and editor of Libertarianism.org, a project of the Cato Institute. Under Aaron's guidance, Libertarianism.org aimed to be a source for the ideas and history providing the foundation for libertarian public policy and featured introductory material as well as new scholarship related to libertarian philosophy, theory, and history. He was also the co-host of Free Thoughts, a weekly podcast on libertarianism and the ideas that influence it. He now hosts Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory, cosmopolitan, and forward-looking case for radical liberty. Look for that on your favorite podcast app. Aaron, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you for having me on, Alex. It's great to have you on, Aaron. So we base each of our episodes around a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, is fusionism dead? So I think a natural place to start then is at the highest level, and of course, we'll have tons of time to drill down, set the terms of the conversation. What do you mean by fusionism? High level description. What I mean is the the broad strategy within kind of institutional libertarianism going back several decades, at least since the 1960s, where libertarians decided that if we were to affect positive political change, like have an effect in the, in the political sphere, the best way to do that was to pick one of the two major American parties and fuse with them in the sense of operating chiefly within them, working largely with them, and trying to grow our influence, like move that particular party in a more libertarian direction. And for a lot of reasons, the one that was chosen was the Republican Party. You know, partly because this was, fusionism was kicking off at the the height of communism and fears of the Soviet Union. And so there was an allying against that sort of what was seen as radical leftism you know like conservatives and libertarians at the time disagreed on a lot but they could both agree that communism was bad there was also a a kind of moral component frank meyer who wrote for the national review and is is the the father of fusionism made the case that you know a big goal for in life is to cultivate virtue yourself to be a virtuous person in in ways that he defined it and that that required self-cultivation. You couldn't be compelled to be virtuous. You couldn't be made virtuous by someone else. And and so the state's role was to essentially provide us with the the moral space, the the free space to cultivate virtue. But at the same time, what we needed was the the social conservative traditions and guidance and traditionally understood virtues as guidelines for like what that looked like in practice. Um, but he saw, you know, a, a state intervening in in ways beyond what we consider like fairly limited libertarian, you know, it, it protects you from violence and theft and provides national defense and so on, like kind of a almost minarchist level state. Anything beyond that was I was both a rights violation and would interfere in essentially people becoming virtuous. And so that led to this this fusing with conservatism that then over the years and maybe reached its height with the Reagan administration, 
saw libertarians perceived by others as part of the right and in many cases thinking of themselves as part of the right and and therefore developing a lot of relationships with the right drawing from conservatives for you know as for donors for organizations mostly cultivating relationships with Republican lawmakers versus Democratic lawmakers, recruiting chiefly from young conservative movements versus young progressive or liberal movements, and so on. So that's the that's the broad fusionist strategy that has, I would say it hasn't, it hasn't dominated libertarianism, but it certainly has been the chief strategy of kind of the institutional and activist libertarianism, particularly in Washington. And and I'm actually glad you sort of t- traced a bit of a temporal sort of element to that with the timeline because you, you talked about sort of when it started and when when the heyday was. In, in your view, when do we start seeing the sort of cracks and the breaking points, if you will, in fusionism? If we want to finish that timeline at a high level, again, we can get to more specifics later. But it's an interesting question because I think that if if you have a clear eyed picture of the American right, there were always cracks that there was never really a fusionism. Um, and I've I've made that argument elsewhere that the right was never really pro freedom in the way that libertarians think about it. That it was at best, from the right's perspective, an alliance of convenience. Um, but at at less of a philosophical level, I think the the real breaking point was the turn in the Republican Party from being the party of Reagan, the party of like, you know, this is. It's not very. It's not necessarily accurate to call Reagan a small government conservative, but he certainly rhetorically, rhetorically yeah, rhetorically, was. exactly. Uh, but the move from that to the much more populist and often authoritarianism, authoritarian, and sometimes shading into fascist tendencies of of the american right now so the rise of populism um the the tea party maybe represents this like the tea party was seen by some as kind of a libertarian movement but i think that was probably a mistake that it it represented this turn away from cosmopolitanism and away from liberalism and towards more of a xenophobic nationalist perspective and so as that took over and then particularly with the rise of trump and trumpism's wholesale takeover of the gop that's when i think it just became untenable to see the the fusionist project as really in existence anymore and actually i want to drill deeper now into something that you did say as you were tracing all that which is ultimately sort of the in your view the the inherent incompatibility between libertarianism and conservatism like you know there are those who might say ah we were compatible at one point we being libertarians and conservatives uh let's say but but that did change later you're talking about the inherent incompatibility so so i want to dig deeper and distinguish conservatism and libertarianism for our conversation in sort of two general ways you know, the underlying values and ideology and so on, as you sort of noted, and then the narrow political application of both. So starting Mm -hmm. with the values and ideology, and I picked this up from some of the articles you've written, you say libertarianism and conservatism are incompatible because they have fundamentally different outlooks on many things, of course, including cultural and social issues. And, And here's a quote from you. You say, in contrast to libertarianism, political conservatism is not about identifying, cultivating, and maintaining those patterns of rules and institutions which maximize liberty. Instead, 
It's about maintaining social patterns. So, so there's a lot in there, but I wanted to sort of yeah. provide that as a jumping off point for that inherent incompatibility for you to elaborate on. Yeah, so to, to unpack a bit what I meant by that, I think you can think of political ideologies as preferences for certain social patterns plus mechanisms for maintaining them. So we'll start with libertarianism. A, a typical libertarian, a radical libertarian, says that the, the best possible society is one that is free from coercion, and typically they mean state coercion, um, and in which all market exchanges are voluntarily entered into, are seen as mutually beneficial and so on, and which and in which all relationships are freely chosen at the individual level as far instead of being compelled by the state. And that's the pattern, right? Like a pattern being just the way things kind of operate and that the pattern persists. And then the that theory turns into a being about the pattern maintaining institutions in the sense that in order for that sort of system to not collapse into authoritarianism or something else, you need a set of institutions that is protecting that. That is, so in this case is, you know, protecting our liberty, limiting the power of the state, and so on. And you can think of most political theories in this way. Conservatism <clears throat> And this this is you know the kind of history of the right going as far back as we have the right, which is effectively as long as we've had humanity, because there's always been you know status quo driven people or reactionary elements or so on. Says my my goal as a conservative is there are certain social patterns that I think are virtuous or are or privilege the people that I think should be privileged or create the hierarchies of status and power that I think are correct, like the British class system, say, and and that the state's job is to make, make sure that those kinds of patterns persist and protect them against change either from within or from without. And so one way to think about it is the a libertarian says the pattern that i want is whichever one maximizes individual liberty and a conservative says the pattern i want is whichever one aligns with my personal preferences as far as tradition and values and so on goes and there can certainly be like temporary alignment between the two <clears throat> in the sense that – and this is this is an argument that a lot of conservatives, particularly of the more liberal or you know, libertarian-leaning bent make, is the best way to promote virtue and values is for government to get out of the way, is for people to be free, and, and then they will choose to live in – you know, good and flourishing ways as opposed to being forced into all sorts of ways that the state might want. And the libertarian can say, great, we can go along with that. Like I might choose differently, but as long as we've agreed that, you know, what we're what we're aiming for is political liberty right now, we can be we can be bedfellows. <clears throat> the problem that you run into is that culture and values change over time. You know, people's 
people's preferences change, people's tastes change, you know, like as simple as the popular music in one decade tends to sound not a lot like the popular music in the next decade. And that's not because the government came in and forced it to change or some institution set it up to change. It's that individual people just going out and choosing the music they wanted to listen to happened to shift their preferences. And over time, these new preferences won out over the old preferences and what became popular music changed. And I think that happens at the full societal social level in a kind of in environment of freedom. People are, if people are free to choose, some people will choose novel things. Some people will choose things that are different from the norm. And oftentimes what they've chosen won't get picked up by anyone else, but sometimes it will. And just over time, the, the culture and the values will shift, you know, and, and the history of like social history of human beings shows this, you know, wildly. Um, <clears throat> the that's going to happen inevitably in a political regime of maximized personal and economic liberty. People are going to choose to do this and it's going to shift. And so if you're a conservative and you have a set of particular preferences about the way that society, like the tastes and values in a society, you can, you can value liberty so long as some like you haven't hit a critical mass of cho of people choosing differently than what it is that you prefer but once you hit that critical mass so the culture shifts dramatically from where you want it to be you're going to have to now choose between political liberty and your preferences as your as your kind of maximized value right like right. And so your choice becomes to either say, oh, no, we've gone too far. Now we need to crack down on liberty to either stop further progression or to scale things back. Or you have to say, yeah, I really would prefer things were different, but I'm not going to – I'm not going to give up on liberty. And so in the first case, you have now broken from libertarianism. You're now no longer fused. In the second case – I would argue you simply have become a libertarian. You've given up your conservatism. You still might have some social conservative, you know, like personal preferences, but you've given up your political conservatism and have just become a political libertarian. And so I think this the relationship is always the relationship of this fusionist relationship is always unstable. So, so in your mind, like let's talk about strictly from like a political perspective for sin, like political activity and, and views on policy in the state and so on. There certainly is room for what you could call someone who is just for the sake of this discussion, though it might be sloppy. Like let's say a, a personal conservative, someone with conservative tastes, like you said, or views on the family or whatever else someone wants to plug in there. But as you said, if politically speaking, they prioritize institutions and a state and so on and so forth, a framework that maximizes liberty, they're a libertarian. That's that's sort of your view on that, right? Yes, yes. Just like you can have libertarians who have wildly different, like hedonistic lifestyle preferences, right? Or stoic lifestyle preferences or whatever else. Like it's libertarianism doesn't compel you to have a per certain set of personal preferences. It's about saying like in the political environment, 
you're going to allow people to live out their preferences, this variety of them, as long as it's peaceful. Makes a lot of sense. Following this digression a, a little further, I, I did have a follow-up about one fusionism point here, but I just want to follow this digression a little further, though. Um, there are some, though, that would say, forget about the state and your outlook on political institutions for a sec. There are some that would say that, for example, some conservative views, you know, maybe some private initiatives, what somebody's trying to do through civil society, some change they're trying to affect, whatever, separated from the state. Um there are some folks going around now, probably then, but especially now, at least from what I can see, saying that there are elements of that sort of personal conservatism or personal outlook that actually still aren't compatible with libertarians. In other words, sort of that person can't be a libertarian if they believe X, Y, and Z, even if they don't want the, the state to enforce it or so on and so forth. Of course, that was very general. There are some specifics we can get to, but what's your sort of take on that? I guess I have two answers to that. The first is kind of a yes, of course. Like if if libertarianism means anything, it means a right to freedom of conscience. And and so your personal – just like it would be weird to say – like if you're a libertarian, you have to prefer 90s melodic hardcore music over 80s new wave, right? right? Like that would be – that would be very strange. Um, of course, libertarians, as you know, like – will argue intensely about those kinds of things. Right. Uh, nobody disagrees more disagrees more than two libertarians, mm-hmm. but um, but we would allow like preferences or preferences. And so I think on one hand you can say like yes of course like your kind of socially conservative views can you know you can hold on to those if you want to be you know a traditionalist Catholic or um, a coastal rock and roll concert going. You know, um, you, that's that's fine. On the other hand, I think that there is, with with some degree of like social conservatism, I think there's a there's an internal tension. That, in the sense that, <clears throat> if you're a political libertarian, you value liberty, you do it for some reason. Like you, you have some reason for for like holding those political views, and you have some reason for saying, I think that we should value liberty above other political concerns. And that might be – it might be religious. It might be a particular moral theory that's led you there. But those reasons would seem to apply elsewhere in your life. And and so I think that in a lot of cases, the the reasons that you have for preferring political liberty also ought to lead you to prefer – freedom of expression in in really diverse ways, freedom of not just freedom of self-authorship, but like a, a a celebration of diversity in self-authorship. Like all of those things that make us think liberty is good ought to lead us to think that liberalism in a social sense mm-hmm. is also good. Right, because there are those who say – and I don't want to spend too much time on this because, I mean, we can chase every corner of the internet and talk about what different people say. But there are those who who view, and it's more than two people, um, libertarianism, for example, as just the, the political aspect of what we were talking about. And they say, hey, but if privately speaking, you know, I'm part of some sort of community or something and we're suppressing this sort of thing or, or whatever, that's fine. Leave me alone. It's ultimately a political project. So like the the idea being, I know you said there's there's some internal tension, but it seems that you lean more towards the idea that perhaps not uniformly, but libertarianism is at its core a little bit more oriented to the traditional or core liberal value side of things, it seems. 
I think so. And and on that, there is that divide. Like there are a lot of people who are like, it's, as long, basically they take the position that as long as what's happening isn't a rights violation, right? Then we should be we should be fine with it. I'm uncomfortable with that view again for the like what are the core reasons argument, and and that's because it seems to me, and this is certainly the history, like the early early movements for liberty came out of movements for religious freedom. They they came out of movements for women's rights, abolitionism, and and other at the time what were very leftist causes against the right as the reactionary element in society. Um, and and ultimately what these were about were that the reason that we care about state coercion is that we think that it is wrong for some people to have domineering power over others. That that having someone dominate you in that way is is bad. And that badness, I think, has to extend beyond simply legality or rights. Um, that we should want people that the the badness is that people who are in these relationships of domination have lost the ability to to self-author, to choose for themselves to flourish in the ways that they want, to experiment with their own lives, to you know articulate the contours that they want and then follow them. And if that same sort of domination exists outside of a strictly state context, we should still care about seeing it undone. It's It just seems very like cognitively bizarre to me to say, I, I care about it only in this one narrow scope, right. but but I don't care about like wild disparities of power and status and influence and the ability to like shut down people's choices through intense social pressures or shaming or whatever. Like we should care about that too. That doesn't necessarily mean that we should say, and as libertarians say, it doesn't mean that we should say like, therefore when we see these, the state should step in to stop them. But it just, seems bizarre to me to say I shouldn't care about those other relationships of domination. Right. In other words, something that you, for example, would condemn the state uh, is doing is because what the state is doing is bad, not that it's just because the state's doing it, for example. Right. Right. And I actually think that that's an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Aaron Powell today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Rosa Payarello, Danny Leroy, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Tasks. I'm speaking with Aaron Powell today. So, Aaron, I think the first half was great. We covered a lot of ground. We started talking about fusionism, got into very specific libertarian things, if you will. Pulling us back back to the top, back to that fusionism theme for a second then, because I want to sort of conclude a point that you, you had started, which was started us down that train of thought at the latter half of the at the first part of our conversation, which was, was this idea of um, essentially someone who we could call standard conservative 
Um, my understanding, and just to wrap up this point, is that you're essentially saying that the sort of, um, I guess, the, the, the fusionism that between libertarians and conservatives was based on a situation where conservatives for that time, that era, epoch, if you will, whatever, um, were basically more leaning towards institutions and ideas and patterns that maximize liberty. Um, but what differentiates the conservative from the libertarian is that for a variety of cultural reasons for the conservative, if I'm understanding you correctly, is more of like a sort of a time-based thing. And otherwise in the future, it, it tends to change. Whereas the libertarian, that's more of a permanent view. Is that sort of a fair summary? Yeah. And I think we can see this play out in practice. Like if you, if you unfortunately had to listen to or read transcripts of speeches from the two national conservatism conferences, it is shocking how anti-free enterprise and anti-markets they are. And the reasons that they give are essentially markets are now disrupting the patterns I like. They, I mean, they don't put it that way, but it is the best form of life is the rural small town, have a job in the in the factory – you know, it used to be the farm, but now it's the factory. Right. Have the, the kind of well-paying blue-collar job where the, the husband can work and earn enough money so the wife doesn't have to, and they go to church and so on. And the free market, and particularly the, the global free market, has disrupted that. It's hollowed out a lot of these towns. Those factories have dried up. The, you know, being able to live a middle-class lifestyle on a single blue-collar income is much harder than it used to be. And all of that is because technology changed, supply chains changed, companies adopted different models, and so on. So freedom led to the, if not collapse, at least diminishing of a particular way of life that they valued. And so this is now, they have now turned, they're very explicitly anti-libertarian. You know, and when they're attacking conservatives and attacking Republicans, they will they will often say things like libertarianism has dominated the Republican Party, which is crazy. Like, <laughs> right. it has not. Uh, but they, you know, that the the problem is the libertarians who snuck into conservatism and have corrupted it with their free market fundamentalism. Right, which no libertarian uh, would say they've had any power right. in that degree at yeah, all, right? It, it wildly estimate under it over, wildly overestimates our influence. Right. But the other version that you hear is the the woke corporation attack, which is essentially there was a time when big corporations tended to be outward facing fairly conservative. The Chamber of Commerce and so on. Like they, you know, business people were conservative. And then for a lot of reasons, I mean, business people still probably, you know, like lean more conservative than right. the general population. But large companies outward facing have embraced more progressive cultural values. Right. You know, like they they do their like gay pride marketing materials and Disney puts gay characters in its films and mm -hmm. and they Black you know, History and can, Month take and so forth. Black History. Yeah, they they like embrace all of mm -hmm. that. <clears throat> and we can take a cynical approach to that, which is just like 
they're trying to, you know, as any marketing organization does, they're trying to latch on to, you know, whatever is going to bring in customers. And if putting, right. you know, gay pride flags on their products will do it, they'll do it. It's not, you know, it's not like, so it's not coming out of like a core belief of theirs. It's just profit chasing. Mm -hmm. But whatever the reasons, it is true that big companies outwardly appear more woke than they mm -hmm. used to. Mm -hmm. And, and so now you are seeing conservatives increasingly attacking big business, trying to punish big business. As, as we record this, DeSantis in Florida is looking for ways to punish Disney for speaking out against his don't say gay legislation. Uh, and so what you had was they were in favor of free enterprise and the free market when the outputs from it looked like the values that they wanted mm -hmm. and the people in charge were more and the or people less in charge aligned. looked like mm -hmm. but as that shifted now they're much more against free markets than they used to be because it wasn't really about the free markets per se like they liked free markets as long as free markets were creating wealth and not disrupting social patterns but as soon as they started they're still creating wealth, but now they're disrupting social patterns, then free markets became a problem. Right. And, and even if I suppose we take the, as you said, purely cynical route, which is corporations are just uh, in their marketing and their PR are just trying to re reflect uh, what culture is doing for appeal and so on and so forth. That's actually a very interesting thing to think of just purely from a mere image perspective, right? Because if a corporation is reflecting what it sees is going to be the current and future trends that are going to make it most appealing, that of course looks threatening to people that disagree with that or conservatives yes. because it's sort of a, a concentrated reflection, if you will, of where they think quote unquote society is at, I suppose. Yes, exactly. Um, and And that ties too into you know, a lot of the uproar about big tech, right? You know, you, you see, you see the left is attacking big tech, but the left's version is something about bigness itself, right. which is like kind of monopoly and they have a lot of money and that's a problem. And then for a while it was big tech enabled the Russians to hack the election kind of arguments. Um, but the, the rights version of this is they are excluding our voices you know? So it's it's no longer that that the free market is providing us with a place where we can where we can dominate the culture, mm -hmm. um, but instead the free market is pushing us out from the culture. And I think there there are a lot of problems with that. Like there's there's not really good evidence that that big tech is systematically canceling conservatives. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. There's also just that. A lot of the times when people get kicked off of big tech, it's because they were like spouting racist stuff right. or attacking people. And it just turns out that there are more people saying racist stuff who happen to be in the conservative camp than in the liberal camp. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not really conservative views that are being excluded. Um, but the broader thing is that they see big tech as a powerful engine for culture moving away from their preferred patterns. And so big tech is now a threat and has to be reined in legislatively, that we need to take away its ability to do this and we need to use the state to do it. And so again, it's an example of as soon as the patterns became disruptive enough, conservatives abandoned the free market in favor of using the cudgel of the state to bring us backwards to the society that they they preferred 
And and on that note too, you know, there are some that, and, and I've talked to many of them actually. Uh, I don't mean on this podcast. I just mean generally speaking mm-hmm. that uh, that they kind of look at in their view, what the standard Republican in their mind is, or the standard conservative in their mind is going from metaphorically speaking, if you will, a William F. Buckley type person to a Donald Trump type person. They sort of look at that as sort of a radical leap. You know, some people say like, well, what happened there? And in your view, from what I gather and listen to and read about what we've written, it seems, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, that in your mind, it's really just sort of on the same spectrum. It's sort of a natural progression of uh, a conservative on the one hand being more passive, let's say during the William F. Buckley metaphor, if you will, versus now just being showing its more reactionary face. Of course, there are some changes, I think, in terms of populism, national conservatives, the world changes over 40, mm-hmm. 50 years. But but it seems to me you, you would feel it's a natural extension or the, the sort of two sides of the same face, if you will, not any radical departure from conservative values in and of itself. I would say, in fact, it's a return to the norm of conservatism, mm. that that the the Buckleyite, Reaganite, Paul Ryan style, um, small government conservatism, call it, was itself a significant departure from what conservatism long had been. You know, like if you go back to the history of the country, and you look at the conservative movements, um, both among the elite, but also at the more you know, popular ground level, they they were nationalist, reactionary, xenophobic, you know, anti-women's suffrage, anti-civil rights, and so on. And and then for a brief couple few decades, the the Buckleyite wing managed to take over kind of the elite level of conservative and conservatism in America. And and dominate the conservative institutions, but the old like the the kind of normal style of conservatism was still there. The base still had those views. It was just that the the conservative elites were powerful enough to essentially keep those views hidden. Um, Trumpism, in that regards, represents just kind of the ending of this weird divert like. This this weird episode where conservatism like wasn't very conservative, right. wasn't very right wing, uh, and a return to form. Right, and so we shouldn't really be surprised about it. I mean, base, one way to look at the rise of Trumpism is the base just eventually got fed up with conservative elites and conservative institutions not being populist and nationalist and xenophobic and all these other things that they wanted them to be and didn't want to take it anymore, and so they turned their support. You know, through the primary process to a guy who was going to represent that kind of old school right wingism. Right. And I think one thing that's key about that too is that a lot of people, including people that are partisan Democrats or Democrats, politicians themselves, at the beginning of this whole thing and including the media as well, they did, you know, try, try to write this off as some sort of weird fringe, wacky set of people that are, you know, um, that Trump's standing on the shoulders of. And the fact is, if Trump's right about one thing, I think it's that he he's basically saying, and he told his base, that's certainly not true. You know, this isn't, you know, two people here. This is a whole set of people that want to yeah. feel this way, that call themselves conservative. This is true conservatism. It, it, it would seem to me that that's actually more correct than people trying to say, oh, it's it's because of five wacky people over there. Right. And I think that's one of the ways that people's trying to trying to maintain a belief in the continued existence of fusionism or the continued wisdom 
of the fusionist strategy right. play to that. Like they they try to convince themselves that Trumpism and populist nationalism still represent a fringe that just somehow like, yes, Trump got to the White House, but he's not in the White House anymore. And we know that lots of Republican lawmakers couldn't stand the guy and seem to be behind closed doors much more Reaganite than, you know, than certainly Trump is or the base is. And we can we can kind of bring it back. You know, when Trump exits the scene or when the elites claw back power, we can bring that back. And I think a lot of those people are simply kidding themselves in terms of how just totally dominant Trumpism has become within the GOP, either in the form of lots of lawmakers elected who actually believe this stuff, um, but also in the form of just Yes, we keep hearing from about these Republicans who disagree, but very few of them are willing to speak up and very right. few of them are willing to challenge the the populist nationalist policies. And so I think it's just that <clears throat> there's not much of that remnant left. And what there is is just so cowed that they aren't – and they're, they're going to be pushed out. Like if they speak up, they'll be pushed out, which we've seen happen. Um, and so maybe – I mean maybe someday – the like the Republican Party and American conservatism can regain its more small government, classical liberal, laissez-faire liberal perspective. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. And I think that it <clears throat> the problem with thinking that it still is a short-term possibility or that that the Republicans are still the people who libertarians should be focused on is that it means ignoring or not cultivating other opportunities to affect positive change because you're like holding on to this thing that you probably should have let go of four or five years ago. Right. And actually that's an excellent point to sort of shift into another gear. I, I wanted to, so we'll, we'll jump into that now, which is we, we sort of talked about the past. We talked about the present. Now we can get into the, the future, if you will, from libertarian or classical liberal perspective or whatever else. Let's talk about what libertarians should focus on as far as the validity of alliance building and so on and so forth. But, you know, before we jump just right into that and outreach and so on and so forth, do you think there's some homework to do on the let's let's talk about in the tent, for example, of libertarianism? Uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of people out there to some degree, including myself, but I won't make this about me. I'll just say quickly that think that there is some homework to be done on the in the libertarian tent in, ter in terms of uh, rejuvenating and revisiting some core values, whether it's, you know, getting past page seven of the wealth of nations or whatever else to say it flippantly and so on and so forth. There's other people that say there, there was never a problem to begin with. In terms of the in the tent stuff, what, what do you think is needed or not needed before we move forward? Yeah, so I'll preface this by saying I'm not, I've never really been involved in like the the more activist or political, like the political side. I mean, weird saying this because I worked for thirteen years at the biggest libertarian, or most prominent libertarian think tank. But like, I wasn't, I wasn't like an on the ground horse race party organization politics guy. Um, I was like the ideas, and <clears throat> and so clearly there has been within the like particularly the activist wing of libertarianism, there's been this really distressing essentially takeover by paleo-libertarians, Hoppians, um, others who look far more reactionary right than they do socially tolerant liberal. Um, and 
and there are people out there fighting that fight, you know, for to get back control of the L, the Libertarian Party and so on. I think that the homework begins with who the next generation of libertarians are um, and what values they bring and then where where they're found. You know, because when I was running libertarianism.org at the Cato Institute, I always saw the mission of that project to help the next generation of leaders, of young leaders in the libertarian movement be better, more principled leaders. And one of the legacies of fusionism has been that the libertarian movement has put most of its, I guess, recruiting attention into right of center organizations, groups, right. students, and so on, uh, and hasn't put us put anywhere near as much effort into recruiting from the the center left or the political left. And and so it shouldn't surprise us then that over time this led to a broader libertarian movement that has a lot of people from the right in it who then have more sympathies for the right than for the left and right-wing cultural values than left-wing cultural values and so on. So I don't think that we should I, – I don't advocate like a counter-fusionism of libertarians to join the Democratic Party. I've, I know people who have made that argument, but I'm skeptical of it. I still think it is – we're not you know, the, the best hope that we have for political change via, um, say, legislative engagement or or political engagement as opposed to like on the ground direct action and so on is, is essentially working with people on issues where we are in alignment. And there are still people in the Republican Party who we align with on issues. Uh, there are also – Lots of people in the Democratic Party who we align with on different issues, um, and I think for a lot of it is it does seem clear to me that for a lot of issues that really matter from a libertarian perspective, the left seems to pose more opportunities for for working together than the right does now. Um, to the level where I think it probably I, you make a strong case that at this point there are probably overall more opportunities to work with the left than the right. But for the long-term health, I think that there just needs to be more of an effort to bring in a diversity of perspectives into the movement to, to reach out to people. You know, young people always get tarred by their elders as, oh, they're a bunch of socialists. They're all woke. They're all opposed to freedom of expression, so on and so forth. And I think young people are a lot more complicated <laughs> than that. Yeah. Uh, you know, like – you poll them. Yes, they. There's there's a very recent survey of college students, um, and yes, a lot of them were fairly down on capitalism. They had a low opinion of capitalism. But if you asked them what they thought of entrepreneurship, it scored very high. Exactly right. Um, and you know, and so it might be that what they think of as capitalism is you know the what a lot of people on the left think of as capitalism, which is like big businesses getting into bed with the state and rigging things in their favor and all that, which is all stuff that like libertarians object to right. too. Mm -hmm. um, but young people are, they're very pro innovation. They've, they've grown up in a time of like rapid technological change and feel very comfortable with it. Um, they're 
they're certainly pro-social tolerance, pro-criminal justice reform. They're friendlier to markets than the right makes them out to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think that if we want a healthier liberty movement, one major thing we need to be doing is figuring out how to talk to those young people, to young people outside of conservative circles. And that begins by first convincing them that we are not a bunch of right-wingers because right. given how tribal and partisan things have become, you know, they like, oh, these guys are just kind of crypto Republicans trying to recruit me. Um, and young people aren't, you know, given the history of fusionism, it's not unreasonable for them to see libertarians as part right. of the right. There is, There has a, been a marketing problem right. created, for lack of a right. better term. And so I think it just, like for me, it is just a real effort to say – Let's step back from this legacy of, of fusionism in terms of rhetoric and networking and so on, and let's try to present our ideas, which I think are good ones, to people in terms – to young people in terms of the issues and values that they say matter most to them and talk in their language and and bring them in and – over time, that will result in a movement that, you know, it's, it's this shouldn't, we don't want a movement of left wingers, but what we want is a movement that is more balanced in like the, in the ideological, like the underlying ideological diversity as far as like people's origin stories, right? Like where they came from, because then it will start to counterbalance and we'll get more internal debate. Um, and that in turn, I think will lead to a healthier, more cosmopolitan and more genuinely liberal movement mm -hmm. do, do you think part of part of that especially for those in the business of spreading ideas for example is to sort of uh, unlearn some of the maybe reactionary tendencies they have to some rhetoric of the quote-unquote young people or the quote-unquote people on the left because at least in my experience and i'm interested to hear your thoughts of course that I find, that, as you said, when you really dig deeper into some of the things that are said, whether the word socialism is thrown around or whether it's anti-capitalism, pro-socialism, pro-labor, whatever, you start parsing underneath there. And although not pure in any sense, because nothing is, there are a lot of really just anti-authoritarian pro-markets in the broadest sense, like marketplace of ideas, tolerance, and so on, uh, tendencies uh, underneath a lot of this rhetoric. Uh, you know, it's not often that people are really talking about wanting the USSR, you know, and I think that, you know, in my mind, some of the folks um, that might be reacting harshly to some of this rhetoric might actually be turning away some people that might be more libertarian curious, if you will, than, than they might initially think of, though I'm not sure if you would agree with that. I think that's absolutely right. And one of the, one of the pieces of advice that I always give to young libertarians is to, stop reading libertarian authors for a while <laughs> and to instead start like really trying to understand the the viewpoints of the people who you are i mean either arguing against or just engaging with right um and so you get like i always get frustrated because like conservatives that the kind of standard like everything is marxism right. anything that they don't like is marxism exactly. it's like no 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 like marxism like is is a is a very complicated, but, you know, very specific, like, set of theories. Um, there are genuine Marxists in the world, but far fewer than, like, conservatives would, you know, lead us to believe. Most of the stuff you're saying is Marxism isn't. And the problem is that you can't 
engage with people who hold ideas different than you unless you really understand in a fair way their ideas. Because otherwise, they just know from the beginning of that conversation that you haven't put the effort in, that you're strawmanning them, that you're mischaracterizing them, and that just shuts it down. Whereas right. if you can say like, no, look, I care – this." Our conversation is important enough to me that I did my homework and that I'm willing to take you seriously, even if we disagree deeply. Then you can start to have those real conversations and you can start to find those initial points of overlap or common views or, or even just like common values. And that's the, where you can start hanging then more and more of like genuine persuasion. Mm -hmm. um, but I think too many, I, it frustrates me a lot, like too many libertarians, including like libertarian scholars and activists and people who ought to know better, you know, will only learn about views, say, of the left by reading conservative or libertarian critics right. writing about them. Right, exactly. Uh, and and that means that they just they don't have a strong understanding of this. They're going to mischaracterize it. They're going to, you know, overplay how much of a threat it is or overstate the differences mm -hmm. or not see where the actual differences are and where the similarities are. Um, and it just you know, we like as libertarians, we get like frustrated. You get there'll be an article going around like in Slate or Salon or something where they're just like these evil libertarians. You're like, this person doesn't know. All they read was like Nancy McLean's Doc Democracy in Chains right. and thought that they know everything about us and they don't. And you can just tell this person is just like has no idea what I actually stand for. And it's like, yes, exactly. But now recognize when you do the same thing to others and exactly. how it makes others feel exactly the same way and how it just shuts down meaningful conversation and persuasion. Absolutely. I, 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 I couldn't agree more than that. And I think if, if um, libertarianism more broadly speaking, even putting aside the political movement, just as I say, as a, as a point of view on institutions, as a sort of history of thought or whatever you want to say, mm -hmm. if all it then, if all it becomes a sort of a, ultimately a very narrow political action project where you're trying to shove the right pamphlets into people's hands. I think it's, it's pretty lost at that point ultimately, because it really is just partisan politics at that point in a certain way. It's not about dealing with ideas and so on and so forth. So I couldn't, couldn't agree more uh, with you on that. Um, and, and as our time winds down here, I think let's just pivot to what I want to kind of last touch on with you, which is probably really related to everything we talked about, of course, uh, you do have have a new podcast uh, that you're working on. I think some episodes have already been released, or at least one at the time of this recording. Um, it's Reimagining Liberty. Beyond all the things that obviously you spoke about here today with great passion that you probably are trying to achieve with that podcast, why don't you, why don't you generally tell us about what's going on with Reimagining Liberty, why it came to be, and why you think it's important? Yeah, I mean, it, it really sprang from when I was at Cato, I recorded nearly... 450 episodes of the Free Thoughts podcast with my good friend Trevor Burris and obviously stopped doing that show when I left Cato and it was hard to give up the podcasting bug. <laughs> it's But so it was selfishly, it's a way for me to continue getting to do that. But I think the the difference between this show is first, so for people who might be familiar with Free Thoughts, um, is this show is more my opportunity to give my perspective on things and a lot and that perspective is very much informed by what we've talked about today that you know these are i have a decade plus of of being a professional libertarian i've come to see what libertarians do well and where i think they go wrong and where i think they could be better and and so reimagining liberty is my attempt to 
make the case for a different approach and to model what I think is a, a better way to talk about and introduce and defend our ideas and to engage with with other ideas. And so to to try to not frame things in a way that is coded, say, conservative or right-wing, to try to focus on issues that I think are of real importance to young people as opposed to the issues that older people think young people ought to care about, um, and to critically engage with and try to deeply understand the ideas that we are arguing with. I just earlier this week recorded what will be the third episode um, that's a conversation with a Marxist, a friend of mine who is a legit communist, um, very well read in Marx and critical theory and other leftist theories. And it's an hour of me just saying, what is Marxism, mm -hmm. you know, and, and asking clarifying questions and trying to get a sense of what he actually believes and why it's not critique. I'm not, I'm not trying to like win a debate with him, but I think that you, it's really important, as I said, to just have this baseline understanding of these ideas. And so, yeah, so that's what the show is about is it's, it's my attempt to present a cosmopolitan vision of Liberty, one that sees Liberty as, as emancipation um, and and do it in a way that I think jettisons some of the unsuccessful strategies of the past and embraces a a willingness to take seriously and engage with ideas that libertarians have often dismissed or mischaracterized or been unwilling to explore, and so to try to get some of these get some of these conversations started while still maintaining this, this core principled commitment to genuinely radical liberty. Excellent. And of course we, we encourage everyone listening to, to this episode of this podcast to check out Aaron's uh, reimagining liberty. That's awesome, Aaron. I'm, I'm definitely going to be a, an avid listener of that myself. It's about at the time now I'm going to bring us to the formal wrap of our episode and in each of our episodes on the curious task, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word to sort of bring everything full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the main question and theme. So let me officially ask you then, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether fusionism is dead and what libertarians should think of that? In other words, if you wanted someone to come away from this episode with one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, in everything we discussed, what would that be? Remember the principles that got you into this and that motivate your your political action, your political views. And be aware of when allies you may have worked with in the past or organizations or groups that you feel comfortable with or mood affiliate with have drifted away from those. And let yourself acknowledge that drift and don't get stuck in counterproductive ways of continuing political advocacy that were perhaps wise at one time, but have become less so. And instead, just again, always keep that principle in mind to be willing to work with non-traditional allies to advance this cause, because I think it's I think it's an important one and it's too important of one to let old partisan and tribal alliances limit our ability to to promote these 
these radical ideas that can make the world a lot better. That's great. I think that's a great place to leave it. Aaron Powell, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Sagan. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.